0: For listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you like this podcast, subscribe to it or share it with some friends. You can also check out some of our other great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, RH Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We're so thankful for you. Good morning. Okay, hey, I'm glad that you're here today and, and I'm really glad to be back. Maybe you guys have been traveling this summer some like I haven't have been gone for the past 2 weeks, which which what that means is is that if you've been here tracking along with the masterclass series that we've been engaged in a couple of weeks ago, you were uh, blessed to be able to hear from Brandon Billups, um, our college and young adult pastor at Rolling Hills. He's literally probably one of the youngest communicators that we have on staff. Um, and then last week, if you were tracking along with Mark chapter 14 in Masterclass, you were privileged to hear from Mike Mentor. He is a um, the most senior member of our teaching team at rolling hills and so you have been given an opportunity to track with the book of mark this entire summer starting at the very beginning and now we've made our way to mark chapter 15 which means we have just two more weeks today and the next sunday before we head back into a brand new school year and all things are literally made new in our lives all over again and what we've been experiencing through the series is an overview of the entire gospel of who Jesus is and ultimately why he came, and I'm excited about it. One of the weeks that I was gone, I got to spend um, in the Amazon rainforest, the the jungles of Brazil, Um, and one of the weeks that I was gone, I got to spend at kids camp in the jungles of Kentucky. Very similar experiences in some ways, um, but also in other ways very different. This is probably my seventh time in Brazil, and this one specifically was going to a pastor's conference center where we were actually able to to train for a week jungle pastors who are ultimately training us in what it means to be servant leaders. And every time I go, I try to remember all the Portuguese that I forgot over the last year and, and, and pick up some new Portuguese along the way. One of the things that we do for the pastors is that we serve all three meals a day. And that doesn't mean we just feed them three meals a day. We actually serve the food three times a day. And every time I go in there with the translators and the cooks, I'm trying to learn the names of the food that we're serving. So if I'm standing in front of the rice, I don't offer the pastors and their wives rice, I say, arroz? And then I serve it on their plate if they like it, and of course they do. So one of the days this week, I was actually at the end of the station where this giant platter of the most beautiful fruit that you've ever seen, because that's what we're really in Brazil for. And so I'm looking down at it, and you know, there's some watermelon, and of course we don't call it watermelon, and there's another, some honeydew melon, of course we don't call it honeydew melon, and there's papaya, and of course we don't call it papaya, and there's pineapple, and of course we don't call it pineapple. And so I'm making sure that I've got all of the names down, so if the pastors say which ones they want, I'll know which ones to serve. Abacaché. Abacaché. Okay, pineapple. I got you. Melon. That's easy because it's melon. Okay, we got that one. Um, Mamau. And every time I'm pronouncing these words and the translators are helping me along the way, they'll they'll say the word and then I'll repeat the word and then they'll say the word again and then I'll repeat the word. And something dawned on me this trip that necessarily hasn't occurred to me before. The translator said, Mamau. And I said, Mamau. And he said, Mm -mm. mamao. And I said, mamao. And he said, no, no, no. Mamao. And he said, mamao. I'm literally saying exactly what I hear you say, but somehow or another, I'm getting it wrong. And I don't understand what's happening. I'm saying mamao, but I think what he's hearing is mamao, because I'm just not somehow, I know it's the Tennessee in me. I'm somehow not saying mamao. Like it's the same word and I'm hearing it the exact same way but somehow I'm getting it wrong. There's some words like that in the kingdom of God, um, some truths like that in the kingdom of God, and, and like, I'm literally saying it just like I see it, but, but somehow or another, I'm still saying it wrong. So right at the beginning of his gospel, Mark literally writes the purpose statement for why he even set out to do this from the very beginning. You don't have to go there, but Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark literally told us everything that he was going to do. He said, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Make no mistake, everything that I'm about to say over however many chapters it takes me to say it is all for one reason and one reason only, for you to understand the good news about Jesus the Messiah, who is the Son of God. And last week in chapter 14, you understood that his introduction, that one sentence, came to complete and total fruition in just two words— In Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62, again the high priest asked him, Jesus has been arrested. He's in the middle of an all-night trial and the high priest asks him over and over again, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Do you claim to be the Messiah that we've been waiting for, that has been prophesied, that we're looking for, who's going to restore Israel and denounce Rome and usher us into a period of what we believe God wants to do with us at the forefront of who he is and what he's going to do? Are you that guy? I am, Jesus replied. And that was it. Those two words, everything that Mark set out to do, have now come full circle. And so we get to chapter 15. They have examined him all night long, and very early in the morning, verse 1, the chief priests, with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. In Brazil, I learned a new phrase this week. It was pegabizu. Y'all can say that. Pegabizu. Y'all literally just trusted me to say that. Like, you just like, I could have just said my mother is ugly, and y'all just repeated it, and you would have, you would have no idea what I just said. It literally means get a clue. And slang, and when the Brazilians say it, they go pegabizu, and there's literally like a hand gesture that goes along with it. Pegabizu, like, get a clue. Like, if there's been any sort of confusion all along the way, if there's been any sort of doubt, any sort of speculation, any sort of, like, unclarity about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, in this moment, he's saying, Pegabizu, like, once and for all, this is it. No more dancing around it. No more, unc- like, this is it. You said it. You said it. I am it. And, and, and so the passage continues. He says, uh, the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asks him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But still, Jesus made no reply. Pilate was amazed. That same word where all of the people who ever heard Jesus teach were literally amazed and hung on every word that he said because he taught as one with authority, not like their chief priests and the scribes and the elders but as one who understood the word and one who was authoritative over the word. Now Pilate gets to experience that emotion, just amazed that Jesus is not defending himself. He's not defending himself against the accusations that the chief priests have brought and now it says in verse six, it was the custom It was customary, it was the tradition at the festival of Passover, which they were engaged in in the city, to release a prisoner whom the people requested. It was Rome giving a nod to the Jews just to keep them quiet, to keep them under their thumb and saying, okay, yeah, whenever they have a religious festival, we'll just throw a bone to them so that they'll stop rebelling and let them have one of their prisoners to go free. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising because there was always a group of people, some zealots and some insurrectionists who were trying to overthrow the Roman government. Of course, it never worked because the Roman government was completely powerful in the moment, and there was a man named Barabbas who was an accessory to that crime. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest had already done their work, they had stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate? Like literally, what's he done wrong? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Our entire faith. Every reason why we gather on Sunday mornings, why people come to this place, why we sing songs, why we give offerings, why we serve our community, every single thing about our faith, and not just that, but the whole world and all of human history hinges on one single confession. Is he or isn't he? that declaration is absolutely no good, no good without the crucifixion. What crime had he committed, asked Pilate, but they shouted all the louder, crucify him. So Peter, the apostle, gets up to preach his very first sermon in the book of Acts. Jesus has died, Jesus has resurrected, Jesus has ascended back to heaven, the Holy Spirit has fallen on people, and things are going crazy. Peter steps up In response to the question of what in the world is happening, and he preaches his very first sermon, one where 3,000 people trusted Christ for salvation. He says in verse 23 of Acts chapter 2, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. That it was God's plan all along, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. And it's by that death, by that crucifixion, by that execution that we received life. It was God's plan all along that Christ must die, and he did it willingly, despite the incredible injustice. It's in your notes. Here he was, this innocent man, despite the insurmountable injustice Christ gave his life for us. Romans chapter 4 says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification so that you and I can one day stand before God like he stood before Pilate as a completely innocent person so that one day the great God of this universe will look at you and will look at me and say, well, what did this man ever do? And it won't be because we're sinless. It won't be because we're innocent. It won't be because we never did anything wrong. It's because of all of that wrong and all of that sin, all of that wickedness was paid for. It was already satisfied so that we can stand before God just as if we have never sinned in the first place. In spite of the incredible injustice, Christ gave his life for us. Consider the charge for a minute. What in Mark chapter 14, the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the elders and the scribes and the teachers of the law and the saints, what they were so incensed over. It says, you have heard the blasphemy, what was misapplied to Jesus, is literally ignored in us. We ignore that sin in our lives. What do you mean we ignore the sin of blasphemy in our lives? Well, if you lie to me, I'll call you a liar. I shouldn't call you a liar because it's kind of rude, and who am I to stand in judgment over one of you? But if you lie, I'll call you a liar. Like, I'll throw that out. If you steal something, I'll call you a thief. Like, I'll call that out. If you're just mean, I'll say, gosh, you wake up on the wrong side of bed this morning? Like, that was pretty rude. Like, we'll call out certain sins in one another, but nobody ever looks at you and be like, whoa, blasphemer. Like, we don't do that. Like, it's not common language. Like, you're not out there in the world behaving whatever way you want to behave. And I'm like, whoa, blaspheme, much? Like, there's no way that I ever call. And yet, it's all over us. Blasphemy is literally to disrespect The throne of God in our lives. And to speak out against God and holy and sacred things. You're like, well, I don't do that, but we live that way. We live as if there is a throne, but we are the ones who belong on it how somehow our autonomy and our self-identity and our determined reality is what we live under. We have taken the authority that belongs to God, and we have self-determined that it should belong to us. Blasphemy, because that throne is his. We were never meant to sit there, nor do we fit there. It's not ours. story continues if you pick up with verse 16, it says, the soldiers led Jesus away to the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, symbolizing royalty. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they they set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff, and they spit on him, falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple road and put his own clothes, clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Says a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. You see, the community was buzzing with extra people. It wasn't just the normal residents of Jerusalem. It was people that had come from all of the countryside and all of the neighboring towns. Basically, all of the nation of Israel had gathered in this one place at this one time to offer their annual sacrifice. It was called Passover. It was the holiday that they were celebrating. And so this man had come from the countryside, and there he is. And they forced him to carry the cross. It says in verse 22, they, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the, the, literally the place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. You see, wine mixed with a little bit of myrrh, it would have been a sedative, and that would have been a really good thing in that moment. Y'all, I can't go to the dentist without Novocaine, so imagine crucifixion. Like, I would have needed a little something to get through the day, but Jesus refused it. If you offer a lot of myrrh mixed with wine, it's intolerable. So there they are mocking Jesus even in their offering. It says in verse 24, they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself in the same way, the chief priest and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is what happened to him. This is the chronicle of the death and the experience of Jesus who willingly offered up his life as a ransom for ours. The way of the world, the custom of the day, the, hey, nod to Israel, sure, you can have one of your prisoners set free. The way of the world offered a temporary release. But God's plan offered permanent peace. The existence of the Roman Empire thrived on something called Pax Romana. It was the mantra of Rome. Peace of Rome. Pax Romana. And it was literally a picture of strength. It was a picture of conquest. It was a picture of empire. Hashtag winning. That's the way that Rome maintained peace. And history looks back on this as a modern wonder of the ancient world that this ancient empire was able to maintain 200 years of relative peace. How did they do it? By force. Roman peace was enacted by force. And so here you have the empire that literally executed anything that stood in its way. The very empire that rejected and killed Jesus, they would become the first to embrace and carry Jesus. Y'all heard of the Catholic Church? How about the Vatican City? The Holy Roman Empire? The very world power that formally executed Jesus would in a matter of decades become the very body of people that made it possible for the rest of the world to have ever, including us, heard of Jesus. It says at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, verse 33. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last And the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And then verse 39. When the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. According to Exodus chapter 29, every single day at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., Jews would offer a sacrificial lamb. You had the morning sacrifice at 9 a.m. and the evening sacrifice at 3 p.m., which I don't really call evening. I'm mean, going like call like that afternoon, but that's okay. They called it evening. So you have the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice every single day. It was instituted in Exodus chapter 29. They stopped it for a long time because of exile and other things, but in Ezra chapter 3, they brought it back. Every day at 9 a.m., every day at 3 p.m., lambs were sacrificed. What time was Jesus hung on the cross? Verse 25, it was 9 in the morning when they crucified him. At what time of day did Jesus die at three in the afternoon? In Jesus, both the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice were completely satisfied. They were complete in Christ, not because he won a war, but because he gave his life. Christy McClellan is a a local area Bible study teacher and writer and speaker, and she travels to Israel and takes people on study tours. She writes this, on the morning of the crucifixion, Jesus was placed on the cross at the exact time that the morning lamb was being sacrificed in the temple. She writes, I wonder if he could hear the bleeding of the lambs. Jesus gave up his spirit at the exact time as the evening lamb was being sacrificed again in the temple. Again, I often wonder if he could hear the bleeding of the lambs. And if in that moment he thought to himself, hey, y'all just take a rest. I got this. The morning and the evening sacrifices in Hebrew are referred to as the tamid. Tamid, tamid, tamid. I'm probably saying it wrong, tamid. It literally means continual or perpetual. In Jesus, the continual and the perpetual, the once and for all time sacrifice was made. No more dead lambs no more mindless effort, no more obedient patterns, no more religious rhetoric. You and I can be completely forgiven perpetually for all time. The sacrifice has been made. Have you ever read something so beautiful and so winsome in your entire life? And the even more beautiful part of the Gospel of Mark is this, that it was written from the perspective of and to an audience of Westerners in the hopes that they would somehow become gospel insiders. And we get to actually see it happen. Why? Because the very picture of Roman strength, the powerful, I imagine very cut, centurion, was the very first To willingly submit to the gospel of God. That centurion was outside faith. He was an active participant in death. And yet he was open to the only one true way of real peace. It says in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have felt peace with God through our lord jesus christ through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of god two words changed the entire world they are i am and you and i can only offer two words in response he is i can add to it i'm not But it's not just the words that we say, it's how we say them, and whether or not we mean them, and what exactly they mean. Peace? Peace. No. Peace. No, 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 no. Peace. Like it sounds the same to me, but if you're talking about Roman peace and you're talking about God's gospel peace, you're talking about two very different things because Roman peace came by force and was maintained by power. Real peace came through sacrifice and it was maintained through weakness. Did you hear the, the religious leaders mocking Jesus? Saying, go ahead come down on the cross, then we will see and believe. If you win, we will believe. If you win, we will follow you. If you do the unthinkable, then yes, we will finally, once and for all, get on your side. Did you see what the centurion said? When he saw the way Jesus died, not when he saw the way that Jesus won, but when he saw the way that Jesus lost, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Gospel? No, no, no. Gospel. Gospel? No, 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 no. No, gospel. We may not think it, but even in this day and in our age and in our generation, there are multiple uses of that word going around. It's certainly prevalent in the United States, but I tell you, if you go to another country, it is rampant and it's widespread and it's called prosperity. It's the idea that if you trust Jesus with your life and if you declare yourself a Christian, then wealth and health are sure to come. And then somehow, if wealth and health don't come, then you must not have given yourself over to the gospel. It's an attitude of winning. Oh yeah, if you're with Jesus, you're automatically going to win, and if you lose in life, then you're probably just not with Jesus. Gospel, gospel. Sounds the same, but they're very, very different. There's other ones too. How about nationalism? That one hurts. Oh gosh, because aren't we supposed to win? I grew up in, in, in a church culture of winning souls and winning converts and it sounds so good and it's, it sounds so merciful and it sounds so, like I, I wanna win people for Christ and yes, that's awesome, but when it comes to the idea of winning converts, winning arguments, winning elections, winning culture, we weren't necessarily called to a gospel of winning when our key leader, ushered in the gospel by losing. It's a gospel of self-sacrifice. It's a gospel of relax. The pressure is off. He's got this. We don't have to win. And in fact, when we lose, we actually do. And it's an okay thing. The centurion didn't see Jesus win on the cross. He saw him lose, and the way he saw him lose inspired him to say, truly this man was the son of God. It sounds different, but the pronunciation is a subtle difference. It's not the same. It's not just that nationalist version that says, okay, we're supposed to win, and if we're not winning, then God's not on his throne. God has never not been on his throne. There's a progressive version, too. It's actually more akin to actual blasphemy. It's reframing the truths of God to fit what's more comfortable for us. Rosaria Butterfield, PhD, college professor, brilliant woman, smarter than any of us in this room, literally spent her entire adult life combating scripture, combating truth, combating the gospel. An atheist actually against this work and through the humble hospitality of a small group of Christian neighbors. She saw the love of Jesus, not in a hashtag winning way, but in a hashtag sacrificial way, and she gave her heart and life to Christ, and she warns us when we go too far to either spectrum by saying, woe to us when we ever consider ourselves more merciful than God. Because there's a group of believers out there, a group of professing Christians out there who are rewriting all the commands and all the truths and all the definitions of things like truth and love and marriage in a way that do not reflect the heartbeat of God, but reflect the heartbeat of mankind. There's the world's way, and there's religion's way, and then there's God's way. Mamao, mamao. Peace, peace. Gospel, it sounds like I'm saying the same things, but in fact, in some ways, we may not. If your version of peace, if your version of faith, if your version of Christian is not his, then you got to learn to say it right. And then we've got to learn to live it right, little by little, syllable by syllable, Sound this out and believe what this word says about who he is. He didn't come to win. He came to save. And the way to do that was to die. And the way that we live like him is to make that same sacrifice. To die to us and our needs, and our desires, and our autonomy, and our authority, and submit willingly to his. That's Jesus, and that's who we follow. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day and this chance to come into this place to examine your word and to hopefully hear and understand what it says and means. It's our desire, God, today, not only to know the truth of the gospel, but to live it. And God, in all ways and in all things, we ask that you would be praised by the people that we are and by the lives that we live. We don't tell you today that we believe in you because you won Jesus. many times you could have reversed history. You could have come down off of the cross. You could have escaped arrest into the woods. Peter drew his sword. You guys could have retreated. You could have orchestrated the crowds of people who had followed you and who had adored you and who just days before had heralded you. To cry out Barabbas, crucify him instead, do punishment for his crimes, let Jesus go free. You could have traded those circumstances at any given moment, and yet you willingly lost. You willingly gave. You willingly sacrificed so that we could not only know how to say the word gospel, so that we could understand the word gospel. So that we could not only declare our faith in you as Christians, but so that we could understand how to say and live as Christians. So we tell you today, Jesus, that we love you, and that we want to know the real you, and that we want to follow you with our lives. You've been listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this podcast episode, we hope you will tell a friend about us and subscribe so you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. Be sure to explore our other great podcasts like the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, you can download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. See you next time and God bless.